This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Uh, really appreciate all of you coming out. It's kind of a crazy, crazy day. I, uh, I have to admit that as I was driving up here, I lived down the hill in Menlo Park. Uh, wasn't sure that anybody else would would do the drive. Um, and it's funny to think that, you know, not that long ago, I mean, really just uh, just a few weeks, we were concerned about fires and had uh, fires burning not that far away from us. Uh, and it's just kind of a reminder that uh, things are always changing. That's the only thing we can be certain of. That uh, whatever we're experiencing in this moment is unique to this moment. And all we know for sure is that the next moment will bring something else. Uh, when I started speaking up here more, more regularly, giving talks basically every month, uh, I chose as my topic, uh, Zen for beginners, uh, which I think is a, is a good topic because really we're all beginners, no matter how long we've been practicing. Uh, but whenever I speak at this time of year, uh, I like to talk about a different topic. And so I'm gonna take a break from Zen for beginners for today. Uh, my neighborhood uh, where I live down in Menlo Park uh, these days uh, is filled with ghosts. Uh, and I don't mean literal ghosts or even metaphorical ghosts, but just pretend ghosts. <laughs> uh, that uh, it seems almost every house uh, has up. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, almost every culture has some sort of tradition around ghosts. And it's honestly not totally clear to me what the Halloween ghosts that are up right now uh, are supposed to represent. Uh, but usually ghosts are somehow the spirits of the dead, of the departed. Uh, and Buddhism is no exception. In the old Buddhist scriptures, in the what we call the Pali Canon, the oldest scriptures we have, uh, there's actually a whole book uh, about ghosts, the Pedavatu, uh, sometimes translated as ghost stories, uh, or a little more formally, stories of the departed. Uh, and in Buddhism, ghosts occupy a very particular uh, position. We are taught that there's six realms of existence. At the very top are, is the realm of the gods. Then there's a realm of what's usually translated as demigods, something a little bit less than this world of the gods. Then there's our human realm. So we're in that third realm from the top. Then the animal realm. And then the ghosts. And below the ghosts uh, is the realm of, of hell. And so these scriptures say that the, the ghosts, the inhabitants of this, fifth realm uh, are the spirits of those whose karma uh, wasn't good enough for a higher birth, but wasn't so terrible uh, that they would earn a rebirth in hell. In later uh, Buddhist teachings, We often refer to these beings as hungry ghosts. 
And that's because uh, they're said to live their lives constantly unsatisfying, unsatisfied, constantly craving things. Sometimes it's said that they crave, you know, truly horrible things like the rotting flesh of a corpse. Uh, and they crave it even though they know that it's horrible and they don't really want it. But more commonly, uh, they crave kind of normal things like food. Uh, but sometimes they're shown to have throats that are so narrow, like the size of a needle, uh, that they can't actually eat anything. Or other times they're shown where whatever they eat turns to fire as soon as it touches their tongue. And so in both cases, they are doomed to live their life hungry, constantly craving, but never being able to satisfy this hunger. Buddha himself had some experience uh, with hunger. Most of you probably know the rough outlines of his biography, that he grew up a prince, uh, what is now India, lived this very pampered life where he didn't really want for anything. Anything he wanted was given to him right away. And for, you know, the first couple decades of his life was, was pretty happy living this way with plenty to eat and drink. But as he got older, as he became a young adult, he started to feel there must be something more. And so he escaped the palace with a servant and it said that he saw these four great sights. Uh, he saw a man who was very sick. He saw a man who was very old. And then he saw a funeral procession and so saw someone who had died. And these three sights were really his first exposure to, to unhappiness, to suffering. And he was horrified. And he thought, if this is what life is really like, if it isn't really just full of the sort of fun and games he had at the palace, then he had to figure out some way of overcoming this suffering. And so then he saw the fourth sight, which was a wandering holy man, a wandering ascetic and decided to leave the palace and, and follow that path. And so having never experienced hunger before, he then went all the way to this other extreme, living life as a wandering ascetic, which in those days often involved practices of extreme fasting. The idea was that if you, you could sort of overcome suffering in a way by punishing yourself, by kind of diving into that suffering, diving into that hunger. And so it's said that he would live long periods on a single grain of rice a day. And as you can imagine, of course, became very weak, very thin. It said that you could count his ribs from the back. And at some point, he got so weak that he, he literally just collapsed at the side of the road. And he realized then that this path that he was on was not gonna get him any closer to these answers of overcoming suffering 
than the old path he had been on of just living a life of pleasure. That although trying to fulfill your every desire was not fruitful, trying to fulfill some of your cravings like hunger was necessary. And so luckily at that moment, a young woman walked by who had just come from, I think milking cows, offered him some milk. And that gave him enough strength to recover. And he decided then that he would, instead of pursuing this ascetic life, he would just meditate as we've been meditating this morning. Found a quiet tree nearby, sat under that tree and dedicated himself to sitting until he had found his answers. And it's said that he meditated all night and at the first sight of the morning star in the morning, he experienced his great awakening. And it's really in sort of homage or even you could say emulation of that that in our tradition, we sit early in the morning. Uh, we didn't start so early this morning, but we sit first thing in the morning in a sense, recreating that experience that Buddha had meditating all through the night. first he had no plans to teach about his great awakening. He thought it would be too complicated for people to understand. But they say the gods descended from one of those higher realms and implored him to teach. And so he agreed. And their argument was that even if everybody didn't understand it, surely somebody would understand it. And, and so it was worth taking the time. And so he began lecturing and his first lecture is recorded in the scriptures. And it was to a group of ascetics that he had been practicing with before he decided to abandon that life. And in that first lecture, he talks about the Four Noble Truths. I won't go through all of them, but the second of these truths is that the cause of suffering, the reason that we suffer in this life is desire, is craving. And I think at some level we've all experienced this. We know that we suffer because we want things to be different. When bad things are happening, we want them to stop when good things are happening, we want them to last forever. When we lack things, we want to have them. When we have things, we want more. When we love someone, we want to keep them close forever. No matter what is happening, this wanting never stops. And this makes us suffer. And I'm sure this has happened to you over and over. It certainly happened to me. Maybe we're craving a certain food and it drives us crazy. Or we want a new car or a new house or new shoes. Or we have lost a friend or a relative or a lover. And we want them back. Even when we're happy for a moment, this desire, this craving is never far away. We might be taking some wonderful vacation and we find ourselves wishing we could extend it just a few days longer. Or maybe we wish we could go home a little sooner. Or we wish something about it was a bit better. Nothing is ever exactly right, at least not for long. 
And so in some ways, we're really all exactly like the hungry ghosts. We're all going through life with cravings we can't satisfy. We don't literally have these tiny little throats that can't even swallow food. But in some ways we might as well because the food we can swallow never wholly satisfies us. And yet if that's the case, what, what's the difference between these two realms, the human realm and the realm of the pretas, the hungry ghosts? Because after all, Buddhism calls these different and they aren't even adjacent realms. There's the animal realm in between. So the hungry ghost is supposed to be a much worse birth than a birth as a suffering human. But if we're all suffering the same basic fate, what is it that makes the human realm better? And the answer is really what we're doing here today. The answer is practice. Meditation. Because the rest of the Four Noble Truths is that in the human realm, we can overcome suffering. We have a path to end our craving. And this path is called the middle way. And the key to this middle way is what we're doing right here. This middle way is all about avoiding extremes. Buddha tried, after all these both extremes of life, a life in pursuit of only pleasure and a life in pursuit of only pain. And neither of them brought him any closer to answering life's great questions. What worked was sticking to the middle which sounds easy, but turns out to be quite hard. I often use this analogy of, of, of bowling. After all, the goal of bowling is just keep the ball in the middle, which sounds like it should be easy. And yet somehow there's this tendency to go to one side or the other. And it takes great skill to stay in that middle. And our life is the same way. It's somehow very easy to veer off into these extremes. And it takes a lot of effort to stay centered in the middle. And the key to staying centered is learning to pay attention. Because as hard as it is to find that middle way, it's almost impossible to find just by accident. You have to look for it. You have to look where you're going. You have to pay attention to where you are. And so this paying attention, what we usually call mindfulness, is what makes the middle way possible. And the way we train our attention, the way we develop the skill of knowing where we actually are is meditation. So that's what we've been doing together all morning. And a little bit like this middle way itself, meditation sounds very simple. And yet something can be simple and difficult at the same time. Some of you, I think, had uh, some meditation instruction with Doug this morning. And when I give meditation instruction, I mean, often it just takes a few minutes because it's really not hard to explain. Uh, there's some 
rigmarole about coming in and out of the zendo and things like that. But if you put that aside, you basically sit down, you try to sit upright, back straight, shoulders back, your hands in your lap, at least somewhere where they won't cause you to slouch over. Your eyes either closed or half closed, your gaze cast downward if your eyes are open. And then you just pay attention. And that's it. I was giving a, leading a meditation retreat uh, in the spring. After the retreat, we asked students for feedback. And one of them complained that I didn't teach more advanced forms of meditation, just that simple form that I just described. But there's no advanced form. <laughs> I felt bad because she clearly wanted something more. But I didn't have anything more. That's the same meditation that I still do 30, 32 or so years after I first learned. In other traditions, they do have other forms, to be fair. But in Zen, we try to keep things very simple. And our belief is that by practicing that paying attention here in the Zendo, quiet place, usually the lights lowered, usually facing a wall. So as few distractions as possible. You can develop that attention muscle in the same way that you might go to the gym and try to strengthen a muscle, you know, entirely in isolation, just doing one simple movement so that you're not complicating things too much. And it's not that we necessarily want to get good at that movement. Often those movements seem a little unnatural, but we're just trying to strengthen that muscle so that we can use that muscle in all kinds of other contexts. And our attention muscle is the same. We try to simplify things so we can just develop that attention, that mindfulness, and then take it with us in our daily lives as we're practicing the middle way. In many Asian cultures, uh, it's common to leave food out for the hungry ghosts, to leave food at the altars. And to be honest, I've never entirely understood why people do this. Because of course, the issue that the hungry ghosts have is not that they can't find food. It's that even when they find the food, either they can't eat it or it just, it doesn't satisfy them. They can't satisfy their cravings no matter what they find. So it's not totally clear why leaving them food would be much help. But it is a nice gesture. And it's a nice gesture because it reminds us to have compassion for all these beings out there who are craving. And that's not always easy. We often see people around us desperately wanting things. And it's easy to be judgmental. We want to tell them to stop worrying about getting a promotion or a better job or a nicer car. Stop buying all those sneakers. Stop wanting so many things. It's not going to make you happy. It's not going to help. But really that sort of scolding is not very helpful either. Everybody, no matter how long we've been practicing, how much we meditate, we all want things we can't have. 
We all cling to things we can't keep. Literally everybody. And once you realize this, suddenly everywhere you look, you see hungry ghosts. And instead of judging them or teasing them or ignoring them, you want to help them. You want to leave some food out for them. We want to show compassion. Because living that way is hard. Nobody wants to be a hungry ghost. And so when you see someone suffering from cravings, show them some kindness. Keep your eyes open for these hungry ghosts around you. Pay attention to all of those who are suffering. Our practice after all is not just for ourselves. It's for all beings. And this time of year, with all those pretend ghosts hung up all around us, is a good time to remember that. Thank you for this. We have some time for questions. Uh, either online or anyone here. Does anyone have anything they'd like to ask or say? Mizu asked if I like to bowl, and if I do, if I'm skillful at it. Uh, I mean, I don't think I've gone bowling in probably 10 years or more. Uh, so I guess, but. I kind of like it, uh, but I'm not skillful at it. Uh, again, it's a good example of something that sounds simple, but it's hard to be skillful. It takes a lot of practice, just like our practice here. Yes, please. I'm continuing to look at desire, craving, and attachment, and the differences between that, and um, it kind of keeps opening up. And one of the things that I've heard about desire, that there are healthy desires. Not all desires are bad. There's, you know, desire for good health, for fitness, or caring for others, the aspiration, the desire to become liberated. And so I started thinking of it more as attachment as um, when I see people who want things, but they're not attached, they can let them go or they're not thrown into depression if it's lost or broken. So is there a difference um, between craving and attachment? The question was uh, about the difference between craving and attachment and whether there's good craving, good desires, as well as bad. So traditionally, um, there was thought to be a few noble desires, the desire for awakening, which drove Buddha on his quest, and the desire to serve others, to help others find awakening. Uh, and those were seen as kind of okay desires to have. But even those, you know, can get in our way. And there's also stories, the 
earliest is probably the story of Ananda, who after the Buddha's death wanted to join the first council, which was going to be 500 of his fully awakened disciples, but he wasn't awakened yet. Uh, and so he was desperate to become awakened before the council took place. And it, he meditated and meditated and meditated, but he wasn't realizing awakening. And it wasn't until he finally gave up on that desire that he experienced awakening himself. And so, so from the very beginning, it was also understood that even these sort of noble desires, and maybe this gets to your question, but even these noble desires, if we're too attached to them, become impediments. I don't know. You know, these words like desire and craving, they're obviously very broad. And so, you know, perhaps it is possible to have a craving that you're not attached to. So uh, before I began speaking, Pamela asked if I'd like some water. I said, yes. So at some level, I guess I'm saying that I would desire water. But if the water had never shown up, I would have been okay. <laughs> so maybe I was not too attached to it, even though I had that desire. Uh, and certainly, we all inevitably find ourselves expressing preferences, these small desires. But if you were to go to a traditional Zen monastery, even a modern one like Tassajara, not too far from here, uh, it's kind of set up to minimize these preferences. So you eat whatever served, you have no control over that. You wake up when the bells go, you go to bed when a different bell goes off. Each bell tells you exactly where you're supposed to go. Are you supposed to sit? Are you supposed to walk? Are you supposed to eat? Are you supposed to bathe? And so you don't really have to make any decisions or express any preferences for yourself. And we structure monastic practice that way because even these small preferences can kind of get in our, get in our way. When I meditate at home in the morning, I always set a timer. Uh, and in some ways it's sort of arbitrary because I can sit as long or as short as I want. But I find if I don't set the timer, I spend the whole meditation time asking myself if this would be a good time to stop meditating. <laughs> so I'm caught up in asking myself, how long do I want to meditate? And I just ask myself that the whole time that I'm sitting. <laughs> Uh, and I usually don't try not even to think about what I'm going to set the timer for. I just sit for the same amount of time that I always sit for, unless there's something really extraordinary that I know I need to get to. But again, trying to not have to engage with even these small desires, these small preferences. Is this a 20 minute day or a 15 minute day or a 30 minute day or a 10 minute day? I just try to make it the same as every other day. Um, and so certainly, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we, it's not clear how one would live with no desires whatsoever. Would you just find yourself starving somewhere because you didn't even have the desire to, enough desire to eat? But on the other hand, I think it's also true that, that even some of these smaller little cravings or preferences that maybe we think we're not attached to can still get in our way. Um, until we try to explore them all in our practice. Is there a question online? Yeah, I um listening. I can't hear. Can you hear me? 
I can't hear you, Randy. I'm not sure if our volume is down or something. We can't hear you online. There might be something with the volume in the Zendo that's off. Yeah, now we've got you. Go ahead. How about now? Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, we're, you know, you, you're talking about in this human realm that we have and our, our path to try to find some sort of, I guess, end craving or, or whatever of sitting in, in our zazen. And, uh, and in this tradition, you know, we pay attention to our breathing and, and we build up something and, um, and we become aware of ourselves and, and maybe our own thoughts and minds. And then, and you mentioned, and, and this is what we do. We, we, we're not, you know, we have other lies beyond the pillow, beyond the sofa. And so we take this into our daily lives. And I don't know if paying attention and awareness are the same thing. Uh, I, when I heard it, I, I, but, you know, you're a person that works in a pretty busy, you know, you, you work in business in a, in a field and, and you carry this paying attention into your daily life. And to me, it's, 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 it's kind of easy on the Zafu, but, what do you have any uh, kind of, I don't want to call them tricks or, or little things that you do when you lose that paying attention? When, how do you regain awareness in, in the world uh, that we interact with? I mean, you know, I, I have my little things, but I'd like to hear, do you have, you know what I'm talking about, or <laughs> that makes sense what I'm saying. How how yes, do we sure. how do we reorient ourselves in in our daily lives? Sometimes do you have uh, anything to say about that? And everybody, you know, thank you for the question. Yeah. Um, you know uh, when when Buddha was still alive and, and teaching, um, he had students who were both what we call householders, so living out in the world, and then monastics who took all the vows and wore robes. And uh, in those days had very strict uh, rules, weren't even allowed to handle money, let alone you know, work. Uh, and these days we often think of the monastic life as quite difficult, but Buddha would always describe the monastic life as much easier, that it was possible to practice as a householder or as a monastic, but that the easy path was the monastic path and the householder path was quite difficult. Um, and it was quite difficult for all the reasons I think you're talking about Randy, which is just, it is harder to practice outside the Zendo you know, we intentionally try to make it easy here. Again, we lower the lights, we stare at the wall. You know, we have no music or sounds or other things. Um, we are still often distracted, but at least we're only really distracted by our own thoughts. There's nothing else to distract us. And so we can really focus on how to overcome that particular source of distraction. Out in the rest of the world, yes, there's often many things that seem to be conspiring to make practice more difficult. All kinds of distractions out there. Uh, I, to me, the, the practice, though, is fundamentally the same. You know, certainly for me, when I'm sitting here in the Zendo, I'll still get distracted. I'll still have my mind start to wander. Uh, this morning I was sitting and I, a song kept coming up into my head. And our practice is just to notice these distractions when they happen. And then when we notice them, to just try to use them as a reminder to come back to, to our practice of paying attention. And 
I really do think it's the same thing when you're out in the world to, to try to notice when you're getting distracted and then use that noticing itself as the reminder to come back to practicing meditation, to paying attention, to being present. And so certainly that will happen to me, you know, I'll be in a conversation with someone and, and realize that I've kind of spaced out or I'll be sitting in a meeting and realize that I'm not paying attention or even driving and realizing that I'm not really fully present. And I try to use that, that moment of, of realizing it as the reminder to come back and just to keep doing that over and over. Um, so I guess that's the closest thing to a trick I can, I can think of uh, to share with you. Um, but it is, it is difficult. Thank you. Uh, it looks like we have another question online. That's you. Yes, hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I was interested with what you were saying about desires and, and the difference between desire and decision. Because thinking about how you say you set a timer, for instance, to meditate a particular amount of time, that's a kind of a global choice that establishes a routine so that you're not every day making, revisiting that same decision and saying, okay, how long do I meditate now? Uh, for instance, I gave up years ago on clothing choices. It used to make me nuts. So I decided, you know what? I'm perfectly happy wearing black clothes. So I'll buy five sweaters that are identical. And I, I think Einstein was onto something. And again, it's the removing the distraction of that, but I've already, but it's not abandoning decision or abandoning choice because I made the decision on a, on a level that's up in here somewhere so that I remove that distraction and that repetitive decision-making going forward. And so the, but I, I don't know quite how that plays into mindfulness. Is it sort of, you know, that it's being mindful earlier on and making a set of choices that then enable you to focus your energies in other places as opposed to revisiting something repetitive every day. And I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, to me, it's very similar to the situation in, in the Zen monasteries that I was describing. I mean, in a, at some level you could say, everyone is still deciding to meditate at certain times, to eat at certain times, to take a bath at certain times, to go to sleep at certain times. They've just sort of all agreed to follow the schedule that was set in the case of Tassajara, you know, 50 years ago, in the case of some monasteries, a thousand years ago. But it's still kind of a decision. They've just kind of decided once and for all to follow the schedule. Uh, and yet there is something about not having to make that decision at each moment. I mean, I can say, for example, when I'm sitting, that just the subjective experience of having made the decision in advance and so not having to make it every moment as I go is, is very different. Uh, I think it was similar to me, uh, for me, uh, in my early 20s, I became a, a vegetarian. And I started by deciding I was just going to cut back on how much meat I would eat. And honestly, I found that extremely difficult because basically at every meal, I was trying to decide, should I have meat or should I not have meat? And so eventually, I just decided this is too hard. I'm just going to stop eating meat altogether. And honestly, that was very easy because then it was just one decision and I didn't have to think about it again. So I do think there is something about at some level repeatedly indulging our preferences that can be quite distracting. And, and just as your experience with, uh, with your clothing, uh, the experience of setting a timer, the experience of living at a monastery, the experience of becoming a vegetarian, there, there is something helpful about 
getting a bunch of those decisions just sort of out of the way so that we don't have to continually revisit them uh, and sort of continually indulge ourselves uh, in this decision-making or preference-making. Uh, so I don't know that I know exactly why that seems more beneficial, less distracting. Uh, but I know certainly that is my own experience. Um, having to make these decisions all the time can, can be really exhausting. Um, it's like, you know, when you go to a restaurant that has just an insanely large menu, and it can almost take all the fun out of it because it's just so much work to decide what it is you want to eat. And in a sense, you know, yeah, life, life is like that. Really, in any given moment, we could do anything. Um, and so we just try to simplify things a little bit by kind of paring down that menu so that we're not spending so much of our time uh, making those decisions. I hope that's helpful. Yes, please. Um, I find a byproduct of our practice is paying attention, the thing that seems to um, be the most prominent thing that I notice is that change is the only thing I can be sure of. And she started to talk today. Thank you for the talk. Um, and I'm, you know, there's a certain amount of liberation in the fact that things are going to change because they could go either way all the time. But there's also a certain sense of panic, a little bit of like, hmm, it could go either way. And um, I wonder, I guess I'm with Randy, do I need cheat sheet on this? <laughs> like, how do you embrace this uncertainty all the time? Because really, it's, it's relentless every moment of every day. The field is open. You know, it's fantastic that Biden field is, but the field is, it's all going to change. And built in, built in is hard. Work. So, any cheats? <laughs> uh, yeah, the question was uh, one of the most noticeable byproducts of our practice is this realization that the only constant is change, that everything changes. And that that can be sort of liberating in some ways that the world is just full of possibilities at all times, at any given moment, anything could happen. But it's also terrifying um, because at any given moment, anything could happen. Uh, and built into that is uh, what Pamela described as heartbreak. Um, knowing, you know, that nothing will last forever. Again, I do think one of the reasons that Buddha felt monastic life was easier was, you know, you don't accumulate any possessions. In those days, you were restricted to, I can never remember, a bowl, a comb, maybe three robes, but a very short list of things. And so although you, at any given moment, you could lose everything, everything wasn't that much. Um, and, you know, you couldn't be in a relationship really. Um, you couldn't have children, couldn't have a partner. So a lot of the things that we fear most losing, losing our house, losing, uh, loved ones you just didn't really have to begin with. So that's not particularly helpful for those of us who haven't chosen to follow that path um, because we do have those attachments and it is scary to think about losing them. And I don't know if there is uh, much I can say because heartbreak is built in, we will 
at some point lose everything. The only consolation I can think of really is that even heartbreak is impermanent, which certainly when it's happening doesn't feel true. It doesn't feel like we could ever get over the loss that we're feeling. And yet, if everything changes, then even heartbreak can't last forever. Which is frightening in its own way, but I think is still true. I think Buddha talked about three kinds of suffering, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, and losing what we have which are all different ways of expressing this impermanence. But even those three sufferings are themselves impermanent. So maybe there's some consolation in that. I think it's basically time for lunch for those of us who are, who are here. Um, Thanks all of you, both here in the Zendo and online for joining us on this really crazy morning. Um, I don't know where all of you are who are joining us online, but here there's uh, just an amazing, more rain than I've seen in quite a while. But thank you all for joining us, for listening to the talk. And, uh, and most of all, thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.